This is the Lean Construction Blogs Podcast, a podcast dedicated to stories, case studies, and lessons learned of applying lean construction from around the world. Join Dick Beyer as he interviews industry leaders, lean construction practitioners, and subject matter experts to help you improve the build environment in general and your design and construction projects in particular, advance your lean journey, and bring your continuous improvement efforts to the next level. Let's get started. Hello, everybody. This is the LeanConstructionBlog.com podcast with Dick Beyer. And I'm Dick Beyer. Uh, welcome. Thanks again for joining us. Uh, thanks for joining last week when we had Dean Reed, LCI member number one on. Today, we're going to continue with our string of number ones, uh, because the job of um, this podcast is to tell the story, really, of the built environment from the lean design and construction perspective. This number one is the first guy who ever gave me and Dan Fauché uh, a job in actually implementing lean design and construction. He was the guy that hired us to be the partnering representatives at the California Prison Healthcare Receivership, CPR. And we were hired to be the lead facilitators for 19 months. Uh, so today, folks, uh, I am really pleased to welcome my good friend, Bill Proctor. Uh, this is in a series of firsts. Last week, we had um, Dean Reed, who is LCI member number one. And uh, Bill Proctor is boss number one, as far as Dan Fauché and I can, were concerned. He hired us under the radar to be partnering uh, facilitators for the CPR and then came to us one day as we were hanging around wishing that we could stay there forever and said, why don't you guys stay here forever? Because I was just talking to my friend, Greg Howell, and he was saying, you know, we have 300 people coming here. And, you know, Fauché and Bayer have to do a pretty good job of, of managing the political space. And, and we really don't know what to do with all those people when they get here. So uh, that's how I remember it. Everybody remembers it differently. How about you, Bill? Well, Dick, uh, very similar. What happens is CPR was a unique opportunity, uh, and we had uh, the chance to take a very large program into lean. Uh, most of us had heard of it, had some seminars, but had never done it before. But this was a thing where the federal courts had ordered the state of California to uh, fix health care. They were killing about half a dozen inmates a month just due to lack of access to care. They named a receiver. The receiver realized very quickly that he didn't have a place to fix health care and decided he needed a very large capital program. So he hired a PM team, us, and um, uh, we quickly arrived at the notion that lean would, this would be a perfect application for lean. And um, uh, set up, well, we did a co-opetition to select our team. It's a public funded project, so we had to manage within that. We did a co-op petition, selected three large design build teams, brought them into a single uh, big room and created what we called a single lean enterprise. In other words, we told everybody that they were a, a part of a single team and they needed to learn to work together. Um, such an enterprise required, it was a relational deal. It was new to everybody and we needed some help in setting that up. So we hired Dick and Dan to manage that. So you left that project um, as the as it all closed down in October or the following spring of 2010. 
Um, and you went back uh, into the consulting world. Tell us a little bit, catch us up on what happened between then and now. Well, Dick, my uh, entire background was in project management. I started in the industry in um, the early 70s uh, before project management as we as a professional service as we know it today even existed. I started as an uh, architect doing construction management on very large, complicated projects. And so I was the regular owner's uh, architect and the owner's representative on, uh, on projects. And um, working on what would be the cutting edge of project management at the time. Tell us, so let's go back a little bit further. Tell us a little bit about your background. You don't sound like you're from California. <laughs> Yeah, I grew up in North Carolina um, and, uh, as I say, started working in architecture and uh, we needed construction administration for uh, large projects. And uh, I just sort of defaulted into it. It was interesting. It's from uh, sort of a misspent youth that uh, I learned I had a propensity for doing it. It's like I was in that that business for a month or six weeks when I, it was like I was struck by lightning. It was like, I really know how to do this. And I didn't realize it early on, but from a misspent youth, I'd learned that I was very good at dealing with people who were very angry. You know, having spent a lot of time as an evangelist for this, uh, for the lean community, I know that the ability to carry on a conversation with somebody under almost any circumstances um, is what really turns people to to thinking about new ways of doing things and getting out of the ways that, you know, a lot of that anger sometimes comes from the way that they're forced to deliver projects and the way that the, those, those projects put pressure on them from the opacity of the contractual relationships to the adversarial nature of what has uh, traditionally been in the in the built environment. Uh, so I, I think you were well, well schooled in that in that area. So tell us how you. Uh, moved through that and, and moved out to California because you ran a number of very large projects in California as well. Um, well, let's, let's, let me take it back a minute, Dick. What, what happened for me was uh, that dealing with very angry clients sort of put me on the path of real understanding that uh, construction to be viable is a relational deal. You know, I mean, it's all about uh, building relations. And uh, I learned very quickly that uh, there are so many constraints on uh, how to make a project work. Um, the contracts, you know, competitive contracts create adversarial relations and uh, particularly when they're low bid. So uh, everybody's bringing distrust into the work uh, when problems come up. Um, it's very difficult for owners and contractors to get them resolved. Architects' contracts were hammered on fee before they ever got started. And then delays and changes and so forth put them up against the wall on, uh, on managing their money. And um, by the time we get to construction, problems would come up that resulted in change orders and so forth. So both contractor and owner were disappointed to angry because of the uncertainty of project costs, delays were there. And so I spent my uh, whole project management career in uh, working on that relational piece and uh, trying to find ways to solve problems within the constraints of the way projects were set up. Uh, we could really make a difference and get things done. Yes, what's, what's, funny, what's funny about you say, well, not so funny, but I think 
it's still redolent in our contracts uh, today, whether it's a lump sum contract or any of those more adversarial contracts. Um, if, if you think about all of the time people spent trying to make claims against each other and all the people that went around trying to detail evidence <laughs> that they would use either in litigation, which was I would, exactly when you were building those things, that's when I was doing you know, big construction litigation um, and finding out many of the same things that you were finding out. But I was finding out at the end of the line where everybody was out of money and out of patience and out of <laughs> any kind of grace. Um, so it, it, that that's one of the things that turned me into trying to move into you know the projects that we're doing. Then when the receivership program came along and um, we were offered the protection of a receiver, we had to comply with um, existing contracting statutes, but we had a lot of room for flexibility in what to do. And then Will Lichtig and uh, Greg Howell and others approached and suggested the lean thing. And between the authority I had with the uh, receiver, protection of the federal court, and the uh, innovative thinking that uh, those guys were bringing to the table, we had the opportunity to invent a whole way of doing projects. And so, you know how when you're doing a mission statement on a project, it's always two paragraphs and it's something about the project and then something about better, faster, cheaper. Right. I always wanted to find a, a shorter mission statement. And on this one, it was clear. It was one word, go, exclamation. <laughs> so what that did was gave us an opportunity to build both mass and momentum, these size of the project and the urgency driven by the, the path clearing by the federal courts to give us the space to run. And so I really had the ability to do whatever was necessary. And I had, then I had the lean community as the guidance for that. You know, it's funny. It's uh, nothing better than having a, um, a federal judge in your pocket. <laughs> yeah, no, that's exactly right. I've never had that before. I've usually had them uh, staring down their nose at me when I had to go report that we were doing everything humanly possible to build the project uh, as fast as possible. And what was great is that this judge had spent 10 years trying to help those guys fix this problem. And he finally just said, don't make me come down there. <laughs> and they made him come down there and he took it over. So Tell me about how you got together with Will and Greg and, and some of the others and, and came up with the scheme about how you were going to uh, really do this. Because not only was it maybe the second kind of integrated project delivery contract in the world after the Center Health guys, but it was $7 billion. I mean, you know, pretty soon that's like a lot of money. Well, it's I, I hate to even say this, Dick, but, uh, you know, we did the traditional uh, competitive selection process, submitted qualifications. They shortlisted the three teams. <clears throat> and then we uh, stood for an interview. And after the interviews, Will Lichtig was on the uh, interview panel and he came up to me and I said, do you know guys know anything about lean? And I said, well, you know, I've been to several of Greg's uh, coffee and donuts seminars where he talked about it. And it's really exciting, but I've never done it. And Will said, well, would you be willing to embrace it? And I said, I would. I'd really like to learn how it goes. So we won. And then it was, uh, you know, how on projects, when you engage them at the very beginning, 
everything's possible, but everything's a constraint. Right. And so uh, with Will and Greg right out of the box, we started talking about how this could work and how we could. uh, We started originally by saying, can the court enable uh, an integrated project delivery agreement? And we just we we realized from the lawyers that we weren't going to be able to do IPD as you know it, but we decided that we can adapt design build public funded design build to comply with the statutory requirements with the judge helping clean up the ambiguities around the edge, and take design build way into IPD industry. Right. It was uh, it was awesome. So how did how did you go out and look for the teams? How did you decide how many teams you needed and how they were going to come together in the big room? And what was the plan or was the plan just to go and see what happened? Well, that that concern about how we can put this much construction on the table at one time was a huge issue. You know, I mean, it was sort of a threshold issue that we had to resolve. And uh, Will and Greg suggested a co-opetition, which they defined as uh, selecting three design build teams at one time. We had to do the traditional procurement process, qualifications, interviews. We uh, decided to move very fast on doing that. But we advertised for uh, that we were going to select three teams, but it wasn't going to be on cost and uh, and speed of construction and you know experience of the teams it was going to be on how they would collaborate and we explained that uh, it was not going to be three separate teams competing with each other for the projects it was going to be a single team with everybody working together and the measure of who got to do the first project was going to be on their transition to a high level of collaboration and the value they brought to the table in that development. The short answer was within a month, the teams were working together so well that we decided we were going to award three projects at one time uh, to that collaborative enterprise divided up in a way that was yet to be determined. Dick, it's hard to describe how transformative that decision was. In the first days, you know, Hensel Phelps, Clark McCarthy, uh, DPR, and uh, eight architectural firms you would have heard of all came into the big room and sort of were watching each other, you know, just thinking, how how is this going to work? But within, within weeks... I knew that it was going to work when I saw that the uh, lead estimator, I mean, their their chief estimator for two of the big contractors had become very close collaborators and were cranking out a wisdom on cost management that I'd never seen before. The architects were uh, sort of elbowing each other in the room in the beginning, and then all of very quickly the best and the brightest in that group started to rise to the top and we were able to build a single team of the some of the smartest corrections and healthcare design individuals in the country that were were working as a single unit yeah it was a very cool uh, it was a very cool team i remember one of the very first things we had to do is like triple the size of the it room because all of these people needed to connect back with their you know, home base to be able to get all the, the documents and the support and all the rest of the stuff that they needed. And that the people back at their home bases were going, whoa, 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 whoa. You want us to, you know, you want HKS to hook up with the HOK 
system. I mean, they're going to just steal everything we have. <laughs> and getting through all of those issues was uh, was fantastic. And it was so much fun to be there during that time. So that we saw that evolution of people who had worked in private offices and had been used to, you know, mahogany desks and uh, espresso machines coming into um, you know, a half an acre room filled with plastic tables and data drops and monitors everywhere. And it was the most, it still is the most mobile, uh, conformable to your needs space that I've I've worked in. And I've been in, you know, 30 big rooms where we've tried to replicate the energy that was in that room on a regular basis from, uh, you know, from Tuesday till late Thursday night. And then the energy that followed at the Sheridan Bar <laughs> downtown after that. I mean, yeah, it really was a big part of it, the, yeah. the relational part. Uh, it was interesting. Dick, you know, one of uh, one of the things Will and Greg pitched in the beginning was big room. And uh, I had a vision of big room. I said, you know, program this big, we're going to need like 3,000 square feet or something. And uh, by the time we had finished designing how the program was going to operate, I went out and rented 16,000 square feet. <laughs> and as you remember, we filled that up to uh, contain the people and the energy. And it was largely about wall space, just enough room to pin everything up, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, we. Did. I, I remember buying, uh, what, about 40 rolling whiteboards so that you had more <laughs> space to pin stuff up on. Yeah. Uh, and it was, it was really interesting how that project morphed because at the end of the it was supposed to be basically from June to Halloween. And then the teams were going to go home and they were going to design some stuff and they'd come back in November and present and say, you know, and then you'd say, well, here's the first fastest you get, you, you get the first project because this was the best kind of overall solution. Um, but at some point in time, we decided uh, that really we, we loved like so many different people on so many different teams. And then there were some people on every team that you kind of, well, you know, so it was it was difficult to pick a team. And I think, as I recall, what ended up happening is we picked an all-star team from each of these different teams to say, come back and and really let's let's finish up these prototypes with this all-star team, which was such an amazing experience um, from my perspective. I think that's really what accelerated us into doing um, all the really good work that was done there. Um, from a you know a, a project director point of view, Dick, coming from um, you know uh, traditional prescriptive project management and having a pretty good understanding of its limitations, if you think about a command and control approach, it would have been frightening to think about how do you organize that into battalions and you know, and all of that oh, yeah. to to get the work done um, and. What, I, what was most satisfying for me, I think, with uh, the guidance of the uh, lean guys in getting our operating system in place was that my job changed to something that was extremely satisfying. And uh, that was the realization that these this huge team, once they understood they were empowered to be creative and innovative and collaborative, they took off. And uh, well, it was self-managing. The creativity was rolling so fast 
and uh, was rolling into the big room and the, you know, all the processes that you and uh, Dan were facilitating that uh, I realized my job was to make sure they had the tools and resources they needed to clear a path for them and get out of their way. What was really cool about that is I, I remember nights, you know, hanging out in your office or hanging out with, um, you know, any of the other teams, either in their offices or uh, down at the Sheridan or some other place. And I remember you would be scribbling up on your wall. You'd be like laying out this whole process. And, and then there'd be guys like Wayne uh, who's out there, you know, scribbling up his own process. And then there was, uh, you know, some of our architect friends like uh, Stan Chu and, and Michael uh, Roberts, I think it was, or Richardson, whatever his name was from Arizona. And they everybody had their own like thing. And then we would bring these things together and they would, they would just get stronger as they were brought together. And then all of a sudden you would sit back in your chair and you'd say, okay, I like that one. Go make it be true. <laughs> go so, make it be true. That was my mantra. In addition to go, the other thing that you said all the time, I think we even made you a license plate that said, make it be true, a California license plate, because that was, uh, that's, that was the greatest kind of servant leadership that I ever saw, because there was never, I mean, even though the receiver would come into the big room sometime, I remember he came in with a big Stetson one time and said, you know, for so long I've had, uh, I've been all hat and no cattle, but you're my cattle. <laughs> I remember him telling that to the team and how, uh, how powerful that was. Yeah, um, we, we actually did several things, Dick. We uh, did a national road trip, you know, mm. so as, a, as a team building thing. This is something I've used several times in the past where um, uh, you've got a new team coming together and they're all wary of each other and trying to uh, size up. Uh, or particularly when friction came into a team early in the project, uh, several people I used to work with and I'd get together and say, road trip. Right. And so we, we would load everybody into a bus or an airplanes and they always had to be three days so that you had two good road dinners in the process. And we'd go see many things that were inspirational during the day and then get together for uh, a big dinner with a lot of wine that was important. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and do the uh, relations development and the first steps in creativity. And so um, we did that. And the road trip you're talking about, we went to the state's existing um, healthcare facility and what was apparent to us, what jumped out at us was the nature of the challenge we were trying to deal with. How do we invent a uh, prison healthcare that's not this and meets all the uh, criteria that the court was giving us for uh, fixing the problem? Think about it. The uh, real challenge for us was our mission was to create facilities that would allow for providing constitutional access to healthcare, which is a very low bar to begin with, but it never been designed. You know, nobody right. knew what it was. So we're designing a very large thing, very fast to a standard that doesn't exist. And so we were inventing the standard and then how to comply with it, but not exceed it. We couldn't spend a dime more than uh, necessary to provide that minimum constitutional access to care. It was a great thing to rally people around, though. I mean, what a great value to define what is a constitutional standard 
of care and to think about, you know, I mean, I always think of target value design as, as creating the values first. Here's, here's the value proposition for the owner. We have to deliver constitutionally mandated healthcare to prisoners. And then what does that look like in terms of big ideas? So what are those huge ideas that actually accomplish that value before you even start designing something or before you start spending any money at all? You've got these ideas of translating values into actual products or solutions. Let me let me let me take you around the corner here a little bit to the the thing that was uh, really my challenge there. The uh, receivership and the urgency for the healthcare gave us the uh, impetus we needed to drive the project. The federal judge and the receiver were willing to open the door for us to do anything within statutory limitations and uh, to uh, get it in place as fast as humanly possible. But, um, and we had a very creative team. We had a very creative process, but my job was to manage all of that. And we didn't talk about it a lot, but uh, I was challenged with managing it within the statutory limitations as well. And we started with the uh, existing best practices of project management at the time. And we really moved hard away from those standards in order to just make this possible. So after the program, uh, how do you take what we learned and apply it to uh, the, you know, the industry. And what I've been working on in the period since then was that question, how in fact do you do that? Yeah, and I think that's, that's what we want to, uh, I, think, I think we really want to deeply explore that because the team that you brought with you was not necessarily <laughs> fundamentally geared to change the delivery of project management as it had been developed in the very opaque, non-transparent adversarial relationship. And I remember one of your um, subalterns having, you know, 20, 20 volumes of, of notebooks on what the policies and procedures were going to be. And I think you may have looked at them and said, yeah, we're not doing that. Yeah, not that. I'm not going to do it. And that, and that goes to the heart of, uh, I think the, the fundamental challenge of uh, implementing lean on a large scale, uh, particularly in the public sector, but in the last 10 years, I've been doing it at the uh, corporate level, large corporate level, the Googles of the world as well. And uh, realizing that um, lean is fiercely constrained by a traditional process, and it goes all the way from uh, the very first spark of an idea for a project through final completion and acceptance. And until the lean industry gets into the place where we're dismantling that and putting a new thing in place, I mean, at a universally applicable level, um, it's constrained. You know, I think we uh, we feel it now. We're we're ten years, twelve years after that project, and I thought we'd have the industry completely turned around by now, and we're, <laughs> we're falling short of that. By some, you and me both. Well, you know, in each in our own way, I think all the veterans of that project have gone on to try to 
change the built environment. I mean, that's what this this podcast is really about stories about people who've been out there trying to change the built environment. It goes beyond even acceptance of the facility. It goes into operations. It goes into tearing it down. And it is really how we make decisions about when we need buildings and what those buildings are going to do and whether they, you know, at the heart of the lean ideal, I think is that you design buildings from the inside out because there's something really beautiful about a building that works. (laughs) Um, And regardless of what it looks like, if it actually works and it functions, it, it has to almost by itself be beautiful in that sense. Um, so I'm really interested in, uh, you know, all of us veterans have gone out and done things. And I'm interested in how it how it affected you and the thing you decided you, you wanted to go after. Because that constraint that you talk about is really what Thomas Kuhn talked about in the structure of scientific revolution. Exactly. And what Mr. Fuller talks about, you know, don't edit the. <laughs> don't worry about the system that exists invent a new system that will so charismatically sweep people into it that it'll just get rid of the old system. And I think that's been, our, I think that's the challenge that you've described. Well, Dick, you know, I, I used to uh, uh, draw a lot of interest, I guess, from uh, analogies, you know, sort of the storytelling to make very complicated things simple. Right. And, and, my um, assessment of, of lean to date is that it's brilliant, you know, and to the extent it's been applied, it's uh, it's proving its value, but it's largely standing outside the fence where they keep the beast. And uh, for reasons that are complicated, just hasn't gotten inside yet. Um, well, that's, and, this, is, this is the great thing about my... Uh my transition to Canada and I tried to get you up here <laughs> As a matter of fact, when, uh, when I'm, we went after this center block project, we went after it together. Um, and suddenly they kept changing the, we were the only, we were the only team that qualified under their original qualifications. And then as they kept changing the qualifications, they began to eliminate you because you had been on so many long-term projects that, you know, and then I tried to get you up here and you came and visited for a little bit and went around met with some folks and and I was just so sorry that I couldn't get you here because the 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 issues that we have now are so exactly in line with the experience you had to try to get those things fixed and resolved you know well um a lot of what I've been what what I decided to do Dick um the obvious choice and a lot of people in uh, you know that that are the leaders of lean have uh, done this, but what I decided was I didn't want to go pitch lean on the coffee and donut circuit, you know, the the seminars that are uh, long on vision and promise and just come on, fellas, do this. And if you do it, uh, magic will happen. I felt like that if we were going to really flip it over, we really needed to go into the engine room and manage it hands on from inside. Right. And what follows on that very quickly is that uh, lean as we know it starts in the middle of the project, you know, after most of the decisions have been made. If you think about the McLean curve, you know, which is the thing that describes that the earlier you make decisions, the more flexibility you have and the less they cost. And as time goes by, they get more expensive and harder to do. Uh, 
when, when we draw that McClamey curve, it's often drawn at the start of construction. People are starting to pull it back. Contractors are starting to pull it back into pre-construction, you know, saying we can add value here by estimating and helping review the documents and so forth. And uh, in the last few years, there's uh, been a lot of action on uh, lean during the design phase. But I look at what's being done and sort of tears come in my eyes and thinking, we aren't there yet. You know, no. we're, we're missing the whole point. And so uh, what I've been working on is um, that the place to start lean is back at that very first spark of a project, that point where sperm meets egg on the uh, <laughs> for the idea. That's, that's where I get in trouble. There's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's that. the right analogy. Yeah. But um, uh, what happens is, uh, let's go back. Uh, at the very beginning of a project, everything is possible. Everything is a constraint. And what that means is, Every decision we make from that very beginning of the project creates constraints for everything that follows. And it, it moves very quickly. And before long, we've got a, a, you know, a lot of decisions made and a lot of constraints thrown in place. But we fail to even address the biggest constraints that are going to affect the project uh, after it's down the road. And so we find ourselves working with outdated contracts and with outdated organization structures and particularly project management plans, right. you know, the way in which the work is going to be operated. So what's really interesting about what you say is that in the last three projects that I've gotten on, um, I, you know, you and I often sing from the same very, very same choir sheet. Uh, and I'm, I've been lucky enough to be up here in Canada where I've been able to actually influence the way that, IPD is rolled out. And the last three projects, I've been a partner in those projects. So I sit in that risk pool. I sit in my profits at risk. I'm a, I'm a voting member of the project management team. So I'm inside where I can actually do something about it, as opposed to a drive-by consultant who gets to, you know, wander in and see if everything's, if all the stickies are in the right order. Right. Um, the, the difficulty and the, the difficulty that you're pointing out is that, uh, we want to be on those projects at the very beginning of design, at the very beginning of programming, even from the from the owner's standpoint, you know, because that's where you can influence it. But because of the way that projects are funded, they typically need to have an elevation. They typically need to have a board of trustees to approve it. They typically need to have some basic design. And so you almost come onto all these projects at schematic level where lots of decisions have already been made and all of your options now, now you're constrained not only by quality, time, cost, and safety and sustainability. Now, I think that one is added to every one of these projects, um, but you're constrained by the fact that the building's been developed and it, and the, the way that they have done it means that you can't do it another way and you're stuck with it. And I think that the architectural piece of this is that, in my experience, and this has been borne out by my target value design workshops that I've done around North America, is that once the architects start drawing, that's the building that you get. Right? We don't go through set-based design and we don't consider, you know, we, we, we don't have 12 tables designing the same building all at the same time to just see what we, we might be able to come up with. 
Well, that perception is uh, much better than where you and I started in Lean, which was it started uh, at construction or at pre-construction. Right. And what you're talking about is it needs to be earlier. It needs to be back all the way at the beginning of design. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is all the way back to the first idea. And if you right. think about everything that happens between that first idea and the place where you can hire an architect, the by far the greatest opportunities for influencing the project, its cost, its outcome, yeah. uh, its time, and so forth, are already done. Those are already constraints. And the decisions are made by a group of people during that phase that we don't even talk to. You know, uh, I, one of the things I've, I've been working on is redefining stakeholders in a, in a project. If you're talking about design, what you'll have is an owner's project manager who's the funnel, the, you know, the control point right. uh, between the design team uh, and the uh, stakeholders. And the stakeholders are usually a limited group of users of the facility who have no authority or power uh, or, or limited, it's not fair to say no, but they, uh, they sit in any number of meetings where they provide contribution into the thought, but they're guided by the architect. They aren't skilled in the collaboration process. We don't do anything to help them do that, to get clarity about how the process is gonna work in order to invent a process that allows them to participate and uh, uh, value definition and uh, target value, you know? Right. And so, so we're missing that back at this earlier stage, this concept phase, uh, where that organization all comes together. When we talk about stakeholders, you know, we're almost always talking about uh, the operators of the building. If it's a university building, we'll talk to faculty and uh, department heads, and there will be some administration folks and some operation and maintenance folks and so forth. But if you go back to the beginning, think about stakeholders. Think about uh, uh, wherever the concept of the project comes from. It's usually a board of directors or, or, or something like that. But beyond that are all the opponents of the project, uh, all the uh, supporting people think about the funding. Where does that come from? Where does the real estate come from? Yeah. Where does the uh, community input come from and so forth? And I realized that during that very first phase, if we aren't managing those stakeholders, then uh, they still have a vote. They at, at somewhere along the way, they have a decision making capability that's going to trip up the project. Huge constraints and what happens later. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was, I was just with uh, Stan Chu and Amy Marks and um, a couple other people, Ben Callen and Melissa McEwen, um, on the Lean Design Forum. And we were talking about, you know, what's new, basically. And my part of it is, is there anything that we're doing that's actually new? And I started talking about the value proposition. And, you know, I, um, I, I sent out to an architect on one of our projects. You know, we have to, the first thing we have to do is a values workshop so we can do, understand the value proposition. And they said, so why would we want to do that? <laughs> I thought, whoa, this is well, pretty crazy. About why. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so what, what, what I ultimately did is, is exactly what you did. I started talking about value from the customer's standpoint, but the customer in this, in, in this conversation is the planet. It's the community. It's the, it's the healthcare system. It's the folks down the street. It's everybody who, who is going to be, to be interacting with this facility. And, and that becomes, and the first question becomes, you know, why do we need a facility in the first place? You know, let's think about what are the other ways that we could be doing this? I've been reading uh, Wendell Berry recently. I don't know if you know Wendell Berry, but he's a, he's a, <laughs> he's a great curmudgeon in, the, in only the best way. Uh, and he had a great line about, um, about nuclear waste. Uh, and he was talking about Edward Wilson's consilience book, right? And he's talking about, you know, Wilson thinks that there's, we're always going to figure stuff out. So we just go ahead and we do nuclear energy without worrying about what we're going to do with the nuclear waste because we'll figure that out. And Wendell Berry comments, you know, wouldn't it have been nice if we had thought about that before we started employing nuclear energy? And it's, I think that's really what you're talking about. It's a Wendell Berryism to take this back. Uh, I don't know if you remember that chronology of a lean project that I did that has some currency in our community, but it starts right back there at the very programming idea. And even before, mm-hmm. you know, is what you're saying is as, as our needs for facilities and um, reactions, you know, countermeasures to those things that happen in our world where we need some watertight place to do some stuff. <laughs> um, we should be thinking a little more deeply about that. That's why I think about what we're talking about is the built environment. And uh, so, it's much bigger. So, so what I've been doing, Dick, if you go back, what I was saying is I wanted to stay away from the coffee and donut theory right. approach and uh, managing hands-on. And when I find a client that is willing to take the leap, we'll come back to that in a minute because that's a huge issue. But uh, what I'm doing for that very first concept phase um, that that we're not dealing with is um, organizing a whole new set-based team. Um, so it's it's got all the elements that we're using in Lean, which is a core team. Um, and then uh, the, the various sets or clusters or how are you referring to that now? Um, but it's a, a different organization. You know, what it, the core team here is the owner's representative, but it's got uh, a representative from the uh, top decision-making authority as well. And then one or several of the uh, key stakeholders, let's call them the influencers of the project. But then the sets are uh, funding and real estate and legal essential if we're going to invent a new kind of contract. We end up arguing about what's statutory and what's policy and what can change and what can't change. And we do battle up in the front end it's because a project manager, usually an outsider, steps up and says, this is possible. And we find that owner who's willing to take the risk and responsibility for changing everything. When you think about that in a government organization or in a big corporate organization, finding that person and helping them see a vision for how the project can be done and being willing to empower and take that step is the biggest decision made on the project. Fantastic way to think about 
the role of master builder type people, right? That's right. It is. It's it's, 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 it's the role of master leader. Whether you call it uh, project management, uh, management or project leadership or project facilitation or facilitated collaborative relational development, <laughs> whatever you want to call it, it is a skill of people who have been on hundreds of projects. It is I, I refer to it as the as the role of the project advocate. So when I'm on these IPD teams, whether the owners paying me or the team the team ultimately pays me. I said, every project needs to have a voice and the voice has to be of the project and not of the interests. So somebody has to be able to bring that voice to the table on a regular basis. And I think what you articulated uh, just now is how you find that voice, how you create that voice. So, so think about how one is given the opportunity to have that voice, Dick. Uh, to an owner, it sounds like P.T. Barnum. You know, when you uh, start the conversation and it can't be that because what we're doing is the very first steps in a profound relationship of trust and responsibility. Uh, And if you think about a large public funded project or a hospital or, you know, uh, uh, even big corporate, particularly big corporate projects seem to be the most complicated place to do this. Right. That person has a that that person response that we call the owner you know, the owner decision maker right. is not empowered to, to really do everything. He's got a huge uh, triangle of people above him that he's got to satisfy. And when you go in as a project manager and pitch, we can do this thing. Uh, it's got to be very compelling because they're betting their life on it. You know, but what's interesting, I think that the biggest constraint that I've noticed is that owners always feel like they're in a very small maze, you know, and they, they only have, well, we could do design build or we could do lump sum or we could do seam. They have all these, you know, definitional terms for contracts when the, the whole reason for a contract initially was to describe a relationship between parties and how they're going to move down the line. And none of those things have names to them, mm-hmm. Right. So this this idea of inventing the contract that fits is something that I've been advocating, especially on mega projects, especially a billion dollars and up. Don't go through an analysis of which of the models is best for you. Go through an analysis of what you need and what you need the contract to do for you and the creation of the relationships that you want to have. So taking Ian McNeil to the next level and saying, you know, these are relational contracts. And I don't think of them as collaborative contracts because collaboration is one of those things that you can really only do with a small group of people who know what they're talking about, <laughs> right? To collaborate to an end. It's, it's really much more cooperative, relational, um, team-based, project-based, I mean, however you want to kind of holistically think about it. <laughs> I have, Dick, but it's really hard. You know, what yeah. I've found is, number one, it's easier on very large projects than it is on smaller things. Right. Uh, and, the reason that's true is the very large programs to that person, that that single point of responsibility on the owner's side, uh, using traditional PMBOK-based prescriptive project management, uh, the concept is uh, let's be collaborative on those things where I benefit from it, and let's be hard as a hammer prescriptive on those things that uh, that we can't.
You know, this is where that, uh, remember the, who is that guy that you would open up the middle of your in-flight magazine and he would have a two-page spread or he'd have something at the back of the magazine about the art of negotiation. I, I think we should do a whole podcast on how kind of phony negotiation actually is. That the idea that somebody wins and somebody loses is just that no one's ever going to get anywhere with that because the loser always resents it. And they're always looking for a way to get back at it. So it, it has to be this kind of relational discussion about what you want as an owner. And you should be able to get it from the, from the community. This is fundamental change in the way we think about construction. It's even fundamental change in the way we think about lean. But where it starts, where the key to this thing is, is uh, me as the project manager sitting with that owner's representative responsible for this thing. And it, it's me explaining why the traditional process is going to be a problem and um, making a promise, you know, and it's, uh, I mean, it's gotta be an informed promise. It can't be empty. So I've got to explain it in a way where that person understands the risk and, and so forth. And I'm asking them to risk their life you know, their their future, their experience and everything, because the change is deep. And when they go, when we go up and recommend it up their chain to the decision makers and out to that group of stakeholders, that's a huge promise where the uh, control of it is not yet promised. That's right. where we learn from CPR about building mass and momentum for change and being accountable and responsible and uh, and running. But that deal, that decision to go forward in that way sort of involves me and that owner sort of making a slice in our hands and a blood brother kind of handshake. And it's a it's a promise where we've agreed that we're going to do this through good and bad, through most difficult problems, highly unpredictable, uh, through fierce opposition, because change does not come easy to each person we're requiring to change who's realized at some point what it means to them. Well, as a guy who invented the mantra, make it be true, um, it sounds like you're out there making it be true for those guys. And when, when, when they get close, I can just see you leaning in, putting your arm on their shoulder and saying, Jennifer, we're going to make this be true. You know, the, the, Let's go do it. And and the partnership, Dick, is uh, Butch and Sundance standing on the uh, cliff with uh, guns ablazing behind them, uh, and, and and that owner saying, "We can't jump; it'll kill us, <laughs> and we're going to die anyway." You know, but um, we're going to make it be true. That's what we're going to make do. it be true, and uh, it's going to be fun. It's going to be successful. And uh, at the end, you're going to be the pioneer that's demonstrated that it's possible. Well, that's why we gave Pioneer Awards to uh, Greg and Glenn <laughs> coming out of LCI. Well, speaking of fun, this has been a hoot, Bill. It's always great to catch up. Thank you so much for your insight. It's been spectacular. I think this is uh, something that um, owners can begin to kind of grapple the, the opportunity that they have that 
feeling that they're in Truman's world, <laughs> you know, where everything is pre-scripted. These are the usual suspects. This is all we can do. Really, when the walls fall down, you find out that there's lots of stuff you can go make true. Um, and you've done a great job of that in your in your well, life, my friend. Well, Nick, and, and you too, you know, from our sort of uh, uh, beginning uh, with a, a leap of faith and uh, your role on the CPR program up through everything you've done since then, you've demonstrated that that leap can pay off and can make a difference. And I'm real proud of uh, having given you the opportunity to get started in it. Well, and I appreciate that. I remember that you used to say, you guys ought to be able to build a business off of this project <laughs> when you're done. And I, that thought went through my mind as I had barricaded myself in that suite at the Sheridan Sacramento with a case of Chardonnay. And I had one week to write that project manual and, um, and we did it. So I, I appreciate, I appreciate your confidence in us and, and all the mentorship and friendship you've given me over the years. Well, now, Dick, you're a battle-scarred old veteran, <laughs> and you understand the consequences of making such a promise. It, it you're is. still here. You know, most people uh, that do it don't stay around after they've, uh, they've seen it. But uh, Well, I, I made a commitment. I mean, I made a commitment to LCI, so I had, that was a great, you know, I feel, I feel very proud of building up LCI to where it is today and being a, you know, a major spokes vehicle out there for these processes but uh, i also feel like you know it just um you're you're constantly trying to get better at what you do i'm so blessed to have found in the last 15 years or so of my professional career hopefully less <laughs> there's more <laughs> beyond this that i found something i really fell in love with i could get behind and i could get after with my whole heart um and bounce back up off the mat after getting knocked down a few times. Well, you've jumped into it, too, in the way I'm talking about hands on. You're not uh, coffee and donut anymore. You're in there right in the middle of the uh, execution, which is the place where the action is. And the beauty of it is there's wide open opportunity in lean because there's so far to go and so much to do. And and so much benefit to gather just just knocking out some of the things we do that that keep people up nights. Uh, so I'm not going to keep you up any longer, even though it's, you know, 11 hour difference <laughs> in time zone between Canada and everywhere else in the world. Yeah. Um, so thanks for spending some time with us today, Bill. It's been great. Happy to do it. Thank you for All right, buddy. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in to the Lean Construction Blogs podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please help us spread the word by sharing, subscribing, or leaving a review on your preferred podcast listening platform. Remember to join us next time as we continue to lower the barriers to applying lean construction and help take your lean journey to the next level. And don't forget to visit the Lean Construction blog to stay up to date on our latest podcast episodes, weekly blog posts, monthly webinars, and upcoming conferences. We hope to see you on the next episode.